Good morning. Please open your copies of God's Holy Scripture to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Lord willing, we will conclude our little series of three sermons on the Word of God. Sean and I spoke, and he was gracious to let me finish this little series on the doctrine of Scripture in Sunday mornings. So you can come back tonight and hear him teach us about revival um, as we worship together this evening. But in our text, I, I am sure that I have not exhausted this text, though I perhaps have exhausted some of you. So I will endeavor to wrap it up today of the making of books. There is no end, Scripture says. And so I suppose it's probably true of sermons, but this sermon series does have an end. And in our text today, we will see that God's Word is enough. Pastor Rick has pointed to that. We don't need more revelation. God has given us everything we need for righteousness, and that frees us. That is liberating to us. It helps us to be confident in the truth and faithful in delivering that truth to others, knowing that we have enough. We have the sufficient revelation. But let's read our text 2 Timothy 3, I'll start in verse 14. Paul's writing to Timothy and says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's holy word for us today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and ask that you would use your word to mold us and make us, to shave off the remaining bits of sin that cling so closely, to form us into the image of your Son. Help us to be the church that we ought to be, and that in Christ we are. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at the second half of verse 16, and we saw that Scripture is profitable. It's beneficial. It's advantageous for us. And we noted specifically four reasons why. We saw first that Scripture is the only book that attends divine blessing. No other book can give you the promise of blessing if you would attend its contents. But we saw also that Scripture is the only book that can provide relief amidst temptation. What book, after all, did Jesus quote against Satan when he was in the desert? Third, we noted that Scripture is the only book that is an infallible guide. It cannot lead you wrong. It's incapable of error because it is indeed God's Word, and God Himself is incapable of error. And fourth, we saw that God's Word doesn't change. God doesn't change, so His Word will not change. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our Lord stands forever. And because of these four things, Scripture is profitable to those who would receive it in faith. We also saw that it's useful for specific things, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. In short, whatever the need is in the Christian life, Scripture is profitable for it. Are you ignorant? You're untrained in something? You're lacking some knowledge? Well, Scripture can teach you. 
When we get out of line, Scripture can straighten us out. When we're not walking the walk like we should, Scripture can rebuke us. When we're unsure of what path to take, Scripture is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And today we move into verse 17 and we see a few more aspects of God's Word. Indeed, if verse 16 was the what Scripture is, what it's used for, verse 17 might explain the goal, the end for which Scripture was given in the life of a believer. Paul says that the man of God may be complete. Paul here is writing to Timothy directly, of course, and he describes him as a man of God, which is language used of Old Testament prophets. It was a title. It was used to refer to Moses in Deuteronomy 33, of David, of Elijah, of the prophets. And so Paul is placing Timothy in the line of great men who spoke on God's behalf. And it's not the first time. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul gives a long list of sins that he wants Timothy to avoid. And he says to Timothy, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. God's spokesman spokesman ought not to be tangled up in sinful affairs. The minister of God's word ought to be marked by godliness, by a pure life, pious conduct. But there's a, the prophetic element of Timothy's role isn't only limited to him. Indeed, inasmuch as every believer is called to speak God's truth, there's a sense in which all New Covenant believers have been given the role of a man of God, of speaking God's truth. In the New Covenant, we are united to Christ by faith, and He is our great prophet, priest, and king. And by virtue of our union with this great prophet, we share in a prophetic element. I don't mean we all predict the future, but I do mean that we serve as mouthpieces for God. We, the church, have been given a message of truth, indeed an entire book of truth, and we've been given a commission to go and to teach, to share the truth of God, like the ambassadors that we are, living in a foreign land, speaking on behalf of our king. And so in one sense, every one of us has a prophetic element to our work, and we stand in the line of these great men of God. In fact, we have something better than those Old Testament men of God had. They were talking about things to come that were distant, that were shadowy, that were unclear to them in all the detail. But we, in light of Christ's coming, have clarity about the realities that have come to pass. We don't have to wonder what the Messiah would be like. He's already come. We don't have to speculate about what His reign will be like or what His coming will reveal. It's already happened. And we have in the coming of Jesus the reality to which all the Old Testament prophets pointed. Even more, we have in the Bible the perfect, spirit-inspired account of all the things that Jesus would have to know. We don't have to wonder if we, get the, if we got the message just right. We don't have to connect all the dots. We have the inspired Word of God. And so I ask you, if, if it is true that we all stand in the tradition of the faithful prophets of old, if we are like the men of God like Paul and Timothy and David and Moses, then we need to ask ourselves, am I faithful to embrace and deliver the message that has been given to me? Am I faithful being an ambassador like I'm called to be? Am I faithful to speak the truth of God's word in the opportunities afforded to me in God's providence? And so as, as parents, 
Are we diligent to teach the truth to our children? Parents are the primary vessels of God's truth to our young ones. Are we faithful? To, to all of us, when we're at work, or at the gym, or we're, we're at the store, are we faithful to speak God's truth to those people around you? Maybe it's a simple word of encouragement. Maybe it's a word of instruction. Maybe it's a word of reproof. Now, Here's a convicting one for me. How, how many of us pray and seek out opportunities to share God's truth? It's one thing to speak the truth when the opportunity falls in your lap. That's, that's pretty easy. That's like going fishing and having the fish jump in your boat. That's the kind of fisherman we'd all love to be. But it doesn't always happen that way, does it? But how many of us put effort, intentionality into sharing the truth? We have been called to be fishers of men. And how many fishermen go fishing without any intentionality and effort? None of them do. Fishermen wake up early. They, they make sure all their equipment is in order. They, they go to where the fish are and they labor diligently to get their catch. You'll, you'll never be a fisher of men if you, if you never, you'll never be a faithful speaker of God's truth in the line of the great men of God if we don't pursue it with intentionality, prayerful intentionality. And so it should be a regular prayer from us. Lord, grant me opportunity to speak your truth. Grant me awareness to recognize that opportunity when it's in front of me. And then grant me the courage and boldness to seize that opportunity. That's what the man of God does. He follows the leading of God who courageously delivers the message of God. He's not like Adam. What did Adam do in the garden? He cowered in the bushes. That's where my sinful flesh wants to be. We don't often like speaking the truth of God to strangers. We're afraid of what they might say or think of us. Perhaps I'm unwilling to speak the truth to, to, to my family out of laziness or apathy. You ever feel that way? I'm so grateful Christ did not feel that way. Christ is our, our faithful perfect prophet, the perfect man of God. He delivered his message without any fear or apathy. He alone was the true fisher of men. He had divine intentionality to seek out the lost, going where they were. And he brings in his catch with matchless skill, and he does this through the gospel. He draws men to himself using the word of God. He doesn't bully them or chastise them or cajole them into his kingdom. He does it with a simple message that he died for the ungodly. Jesus came in human flesh and lived a perfect life according to the law, never once sinning. Yet he died in the place of sinners, taking the wrath that they had earned for themselves. It's a simple message. But fishing is pretty simple. And it's enough. It's enough for our great man of God. And that message is for each of us. If you find yourself not as faithful with the Word of God as you'd like to be, or fearful to speak God's Word when you should, then be encouraged. Jesus died for that sin. He died for your lack of intentionality, or your lack of faithfulness, or your lack of diligence. He died for our timidity, our fear of man. That means there's no more punishment for those who believe. God's not upset with you. He's not ashamed of your poor effort. In fact, his message for you is this. Christ's work is complete, and because of that, you can be complete. 
you can be complete as a man of God. That's, that takes us back to our text. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable that the man of God may be complete. Do you want to be complete, lacking in nothing? Do you want to be well-prepared as a, a trained fisher of men? Then listen to God's Word, and God's Word, all of it points you to Jesus. All of it points you to Christ. And so arm yourself with the good news that Christ has forgiven you, and He's drafted you into His army of fishermen, as you, if you will. But the message is, is for others, too. If you are listening and you're still unconvinced, then you need to know what God's Word says will become of you. You might think that you know better or that this Christianity stuff is just a myth to help people sleep at night. Well, I challenge you with this. What if you're wrong? What if you're wrong and the Bible is correct? If that is the case then you'll be like the people described in the very next chapter of this book who turn away from listening to the truth and wind up receiving judgment. That's what Paul says in chapter 4, that the Lord will repay people according to their deeds and He will return to judge the living and the dead. No amount of money can shield you from that. No worldly success or good deeds or service, none of it will shield you from God's judgment. So if you will not have Christ as your prophet and advocate speaking on your behalf, then you will him, have him as your prophet speaking judgment to you on the final day. And his word is cutting and fierce. It means each one of your sins will be revealed for all to see. No dark thought, no shameful act will be left unturned. Each of your dark deeds will be listed as evidence to justify your eternal condemnation in hell. But that doesn't have to be the case. Christ is instead willing to speak a word of grace to you if you would but trust in Him. His, his promises are made to all who would come to Him. Trust in this Jesus and His good word as the perfect man of God. His message is trustworthy. It's worthy of being accepted by everyone, Paul says. Trust in this Jesus and you can be spared from the judgment that is to come. Now going back to verse 17, Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice the exhaustiveness of Paul's statement that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is perhaps the clearest statement in all of Scripture of what theologians call the sufficiency of Scripture. The doctrine of Scripture's sufficiency. That means Scripture lacks nothing that is needed to love God and to honor Him. Scripture is not merely a profitable book that one could read along with others that can supplement it. Rather, Scripture contains all that a man or woman needs to honor God. Equipped for every good work. That means that if there is any good work that God wants us to do, there is provision made in God's Word for training the Christian in it. There is no good work other than what God has taught us in His Word. It equips us for every good work. It's a similar statement to Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Being blameless is paralleled with walking in the law of the Lord. So you want to be blameless? You want to be righteous? You want to be holy? Do what God says in His Word. 
Nothing more is necessary. To be morally perfect in God's sight, then, what are we called to do in addition to Scripture? Nothing. Nothing. If we simply keep the words of Scripture, we'll be blameless. We'll be doing every good work that God expects of us. Because this is good news. This is very good news for us. Many people today are happy to affirm that the Bible has some good things in it. That Jesus was a good moral teacher. That there's some things in it that are helpful. The golden rule. Even unbelievers will say the golden rule is okay. But they don't want to affirm that the Bible is sufficient. The Bible might be helpful, but what you really need is some more understanding over here of psychology or philosophy to really get your, get your head on straight. Or maybe the Bible's helpful, but what we really need to get into the root of modern man's problems is some more critical theory. That's what we need. But Paul would have us to see otherwise. God's Word is sufficient. It is capable of equipping every believer every, in every way to do everything they need to do. No supplementation is necessary. No additional studies required to honor God. And if that's true, if Scripture is indeed sufficient, let me give us four applications, four implications, perhaps, of this truth. Number one, if Scripture is sufficient, then nothing is lacking and nothing need be added. If Scripture is sufficient, nothing is lacking and nothing need be added. False religions... And cults always seek to undermine the sufficiency of Scripture. Mormonism will tell you that the Bible is good, but it's not sufficient. What we really need was Joseph Smith to come and get some angelically delivered golden plates, which allowed him to then dictate the Book of Mormon, and that's the final revelation. The Bible's not enough. Islam will tell you that the Bible has good things in it, and it was sufficient for its time back then in the Old Testament. But what was revealed later to Muhammad superseded all of that, and now the Quran is the final word of God. The Bible's not enough. You need the Quran. Indeed, the Roman Catholic Church practically denies the doctrine of sufficiency when they tell you that the Pope and his bishops are needed to apply to interpret and apply the oral tradition that's come down from the apostles through the line of popes. It doesn't matter to them that things like purgatory or the treasury of merit aren't in the Bible. They're taught in the church's authoritative tradition, and therefore they're on par with the authority of Scripture. God's Word, Scripture, is not enough. It has to be supplemented by man's Word and tradition. But all that is contrary to what Paul teaches here. God's word is enough for us to be complete. It's enough for us to be ready for every good work. Scripture is sufficient. And therefore, we need to be on guard against any teaching, any church, any doctrine that would explicitly or implicitly undermine the sufficiency of God's word. Second, if God's word is indeed sufficient for our faith, then we are free from the traditions of men. We are free from the traditions of men. Mankind has a long history of trying to worship God according to his imagination. Cain brought the wrong sacrifice. The Hebrews made the golden calf right after coming through the Red Sea. Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire to the Lord in Leviticus 10. Hophni and Phinehas corrupted the priestly work of the sanctuary in 1 Samuel 2. Man has within him some sort of corruption that makes it to where he's not content to worship God as God has prescribed. 
We like to make up new ceremonies, new traditions out of our own imagination. And it is not lost on me that we, this week, just started the season of Lent, where many professing believers went and put ash on their forehead at a Roman Catholic church. That's another tradition that has no direct biblical support. If God's word is sufficient, then we don't have to make up more ways to honor the Lord. Indeed, we shouldn't try to make up new ways and new ceremonies and new traditions, even if we're well-intended trying to honor the Lord. His word is sufficient for every good work, which includes how the church ought to worship. The word, the sufficiency of the word means that we're free from following the traditions of men. And the flip side of that is point number three. If God's word is sufficient, then we're free from the prohibitions of men. If God's word is sufficient, we are free from the prohibitions of men. We don't have to put up extra fences around what is or is not righteous behavior. God's word is enough. Like we said earlier from Psalm 119, to walk in the law of the Lord is to be blameless. We don't have to, nor should we, add prohibitions to God's word. Some, some people claiming to be Christians will say all kinds of things that you must do if you really want to be holy. Don't drink caffeine or don't drink alcohol or don't go dancing, don't go to the movies, don't eat meat, whatever it is. The list goes on and on and on. And they, have, they always try to have a really good rationale from Scripture. What they're doing is adding to God's word. I had someone tell me one time that I had to eat the diet of uh, locusts that John the Baptist hit, did in the, in the wilderness. Because Jesus said of John the Baptist that blessed was he among men. No, no one righteous like him, and so therefore we all ought to eat locusts. Like, get behind me, Satan. I'm not, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not eating locusts. You don't have to obey these extra rules. God's word is sufficient for every good work. I don't have to obey extra biblical commands. I don't have to seek out some extra list of written or unwritten rules. In fact, even, even with the best of intentions, when we add to God's word extra fences, extra rules, there will be harm to the church and to the lives of individual believers. And doctrinally, if the Holy Spirit writes the law of God on our hearts and we're seeking to obey a different law than what he has revealed, he's not going to empower obedience to those rules that don't have approval from Scripture. Believers will not generally find obedience uh, joyful obedience to those commands because that's not the law that's been written on our hearts. And in some cases, Christians may repeatedly and earnestly plead for God for victory in those, those supposed sins that aren't in fact sin and nor do they displease the Lord. Great discouragement and prayer and frustration in the Christian life is often the outcome. And in other cases, continued or even increasing disobedience to those sins will result in a false sense of guilt and feeling like you're alienated from God. And in others, there, there will arise an increasingly uncompromising and legalistic insistence on those new rules because they think that they do follow them. And so genuine fellowship among believers, communion gets broken and severed because you have the do's and the do-nots. 
It harms God's church. It's destructive. It harms relationship. It fosters pride among some and discouragement among others. It's detrimental to all parties involved. We're instead called to obey God's word, which is our sufficient rule for life and godliness. Psalm 119 again says, I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk at liberty. It's freedom. Because I've sought your precepts. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Do you want liberty? Peace? Freedom? Then the word of God is enough for you. Lastly, we've seen God's word needs nothing added to it. It protects us from the traditions of men and from the prohibitions of men. Finally, if God's word is sufficient, then we should be content with God's revelation. If God's word is sufficient, we should be content with God's revelation. There are some things in the Bible that God has told us very little about. And we should be content with that. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. There are some things we could say that are above our pay grade. And that's okay. Indeed, not merely okay. It's for our good. God in his infinite wisdom has given us all that we need and has revealed in scripture what is right and good for us to have right now. We must accept that scripture is what God has revealed according to his infinite wisdom and not what we think scripture ought to be. Some people are not content with what God has revealed. They either think that God should have emphasized certain things more or should have emphasized certain things less. They don't like some parts of Scripture, so they either neglect it or they shy away from it or they just ignore it altogether. You see this in churches all over where there can be a tendency to ignore certain biblical categories. Like sin, righteousness, blood, atonement. Stuff that people don't want to hear about. So you can skim over portions of Scripture because they don't align with modern man's sensibilities. For example, I can talk about portions of Scripture, God's good, holy word, and talk about submission and man being the head of woman, and some people start to squirm. They immediately start thinking about the yeah, but statements. Yeah, it's in there, but but you really got to talk about this over here. Or the portions of Scripture that talk about the duties of slaves and their masters. The duties of each are in there. Whatever portion of Scripture and however uncomfortable it might make us, the doctrine of Scripture's sufficiency reminds us that all Scripture is God's breathed and all Scripture is profitable. It is good and it's consistent with godliness. We can't pick and choose which portions of Scripture we like. It wouldn't be God's Word then at that point. If we are the editors, if we are the final editor, it's our Word. It's not God's Word that we're trying to listen to. We should be content with the revelation that's been given and realize And emphasize what God has emphasized. Resting content in the revelation that is sufficient. But indeed, we can run off the rails on the other side too. Some ignore portions of scripture, but equally damaging can be those groups that overemphasize portions of scripture to the detriment of the rest. Cults like to do that, for example. If you've ever noticed that. They'll take a single verse or a single portion of Scripture and use it as a sledgehammer to bash down everything else in Scripture. 
They pull things out of context and knock down everything else, leading to a faith that is at best imbalanced, at worst heretical. The Mormons, for example, they take a single verse that mentions baptism for the dead, mentioned only one time in Scripture, and they use that as the big interpretive lens through which they view everything else, and they knock down all other portions of Scripture. They get all out of whack, and they ultimately lose the gospel. That's not what we're called to do. The sufficiency of God's word is enough for us to rest contented in God's revelation, neither ignoring portions of Scripture that we don't like, nor overemphasizing other portions of Scripture to the detriment of all the rest. We're called to embrace the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible, all of it. It all goes together. And we are to embrace it for our good. Churches and individuals both need a steady diet from the whole counsel of God's word, rightly interpreted and applied, if they're to grow up into the men and women that God calls them to be, equipped for every good work, complete. There are the four implications that I have for us of the doctrine of Scripture's sufficiency. We have been given God's word, and it's enough for us to please the Lord in every area of life. And one part of God's word that describes how God's church is to honor him is through a word picture. It's through the Lord's Supper, where Christ speaks again to us. He is instructing us with illustrations, with pictures to remind us of what it is to live by faith. We receive him and we receive his gospel and we take it in. We embrace it. We make it part of us. We internalize through faith, the truth of God's word. And we do that just like we internalize the bread and the cup, both of which symbolize the sacrifice of Christ, the heart of the gospel. His body was sacrificed in the place of his church, and his blood was shed that we might be forgiven. That's the message of God's word. It's the same message as proclaimed at the table of the Lord. If you are like the saints of God described in Acts 2, devoted to the apostolic teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, then we invite you to join us at Christ's table. This is your fellowship meal, your communion meal, a weekly reminder from Christ where he proclaims to you your forgiveness, the fact that you have peace with him through his sacrifice. But if you haven't yet trusted in Christ, then let these plates pass. Be reconciled first to God through Christ. Be baptized into his body and then join us at the table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word of truth, which is that Christ has died for sinful men. Lord, we pray that we would come to this table by faith, that we would receive the good news that Christ has died for all of our sins, that his atonement is sufficient. His atonement is complete. And simply by receiving it, With childlike faith, we too are adopted into your household and made heirs of the King. Take these elements, Lord, and use them to build up your church, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Table servants, please come.